Welcome to the Spring Forth Podcast, a ministry of the First Congregational Church of McGregor Isle. This recording was made on April 1st, 2021, Monday, Thursday. Good evening. I invite us to join together in the confession and forgiveness that it's printed in the bulletin. Most merciful God, we confess that we are captive to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Through his bountiful mercy, God offered Jesus Christ as an offering for our sins, and through him we have received his mercy. God forgives all our sins. As a called and ordained minister of the Church of Christ, and by Christ's authority, I hereby declare to you the entire forgiveness of all of your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Good evening, everyone. Uh, a responsive reading tonight. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the child of your serving girl. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The scripture reading for this evening comes to us from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, verses 31b through 35. A reading from the Gospel of John. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who has bathed need not wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. Jesus said to him, For he knew who was to betray him. And for this reason he said, Not all of you were clean. After he had washed their feet, he had put on his robe, he had returned to the table, and he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. When he had gone out, Jesus had said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. 
If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, I will also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of the Holy Gospel. Let us pray. Lord, it's been a long journey to reach this point. Some of us may say, I can't believe it's nearly Easter already. Others feel as if it has taken some great time to even reach this point. Wherever we find ourselves and wherever you find us right now, we ask that you would bless us. These next three days are weighty as we make our way towards Easter. And as we truly immerse ourselves in the narrative of the last moments of Jesus' life on earth, we wrestle with that gravity and how it intersects with our own present condition. We feel like we have been under the burden of the cross these many months, and it does not seem to get any easier. We ask not that you would speak necessarily words of comfort that would absolve us from the life of service we are called to live, but that you would speak words to us that would breathe into our weary bodies and minds the renewal that we need to keep going, to keep bearing witness, to keep learning, to live as you have lived. Tonight, we come to be in your presence, to receive your word, and to allow it to inform how we live. May the words of my mouth, meditations of our hearts, always be an, an offering to you. May you find it pleasing. In Jesus' name, amen. I have said before in the past, and it always bears repeating, we ministers like to get stuck into a groove, especially when we hear something that we have said that actually appeals to us. And there's been many a times in my preaching where there's something that I didn't anticipate saying, and I said it, and I was like, hey, that's pretty good. I might want to remember that. And at least if it's happening, at least if one person remembers something that I've said, that's pretty good, especially if it's me. And one thing that I have said during the course of my time here has been one of the most extraordinary things, probably the first most extraordinary thing that I find about the character of Jesus is that he noticed people. He noticed them. His entire ministry was one of taking notice and taking account of the individuals who were around them. I mean, that's his first step towards serving people is to notice their condition and to see them there. And that is what I will always maintain as the first and most noble character of Jesus was his ability to stop the entire entourage and say, behold this situation, behold this individual whom God has created for this time, for this moment. But as I was making my way towards tonight's meditation, I realized that, that there is another really incredible attribute about Jesus, which I think we should also focus in on, and that is his ability to have a tempered conscience in the midst of human frailty, of human failure, of human brokenness. That not only would he notice individuals and minister to them, but he never allowed their sort of human and broken nature to ever shake his resolve. Now, it's very important for us to be mindful of that as we think about what's taking place here in tonight's gospel. Jesus, in anticipation of the festival of the Passover, is having a meal with his disciples. He knows full well what stretches out before him. He has been trying to tell his disciples, 
He has been trying to tell them on numerous occasions that the Son of Man will be given up. He'll be arrested, beaten, charged. He'll be crucified. And then on the third day, he will rise again. He spoke very openly and very plainly at several junctures in the gospel narrative, and the disciples had deaf ears. There was one instance in which Peter openly pushed back and says, Lord, these things will never happen to you, as if Peter could stop the very will of God from unfolding. What Peter was responding to was the fact that he was hearing something unpleasant that he didn't have the stomach for, and I can relate to that. I can relate to that if somebody wants to tell you something unpleasant and you're not in the position and the frame of mind to want to hear that because it just doesn't set with your vision and your version of how things should be. And Peter gets corrected by Jesus and says, get behind me for you were setting your mind on earthly things and not on divine things. Now in this room with his disciples, Jesus knows who is going to betray him. He goes into the meal not clueless. He knows exactly that Judas has only been moments away from having concocted and devised a scheme to lead the authorities to where Jesus is because, and we spoke about this on Palm Sunday, there were individuals who had gathered to see Jesus enter into Jerusalem, and they were enthusiastic, beyond crazy with themselves, that finally Jesus is entering into his rightful sphere. He's entering into the seat of power. And at some point in the coming days, he will call for the brandishing of arms, and he will take Rome back. He will say, Rome, get out. It is not the will of my Father in heaven that you should oppress us. This is, this is in the mind of the people. They were so enthusiastic. Their Messiah has arrived. But they didn't read the details. They didn't read the signs. Jesus arrived on the foal, colt of a donkey. A ridiculous sight. He's humble. He's not posturing. He's not coming in with boldness. But that's okay because people, we see what we want to see. And we define things the way we want to, to define it. So, okay, so Jesus didn't have the right mount. But that's okay, he's going to get around to it, and we're going to be ready. I had mentioned on Palm Sunday that those same enthusiastic voices who cheered Jesus' entry would soon lose their composure. And they would soon become disappointed in him. And they would soon ask for him to be dealt with. We have to be careful about what we hope for, what we wish for. We have to be careful about the designs that we put on things. And this whole week in the Christian narrative is about misguided presumptions, anticipations. It's about being able to read everything entirely wrong. Instead of seeing and recognizing that God was doing a new thing, they felt that it was going to be a, a certain pattern, that Jesus was going to be a Judas Maccabeus and lead a great revolt, and it didn't happen. And Judas was one of those individuals. Judas was zealot. He was passionate. He was fiery, and he was not at all opposed to a little bit of violence if it meant prevailing if it meant for his side to win. You know, what's an insurrection between friends? But when Judas realized that Jesus wasn't going to bring about the sort of cataclysmic power shift that he had hoped for, he says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm through with him. And I know I'm not alone in this, so I'll, I'll just deliver him up to the authorities because I know exactly where he's going to be. And frankly, I've just, I, I don't have the stomach for him anymore. Now he's in the room. He's there dining with Jesus and the other disciples. Jesus knows this. Jesus also knows that in the coming days, there will be Peter, just a few hours. Peter will deny him. He knows this also. Peter, the same one, says, God forbid it, these things will never happen to you. Peter, before the crack of dawn, you're going to 
forget, you're going to decay. You're, you didn't know me before the cock crows three times. And Peter's like, no, it won't happen. Well, you know, okay, you'll see. And also in this same group is Thomas. Thomas, you'll hear more about him on the 11th. Because Thomas was the individual that when the disciples came to him and says, we have seen the Lord, Thomas is like, I'm going to need a little bit more evidence than that. I'm going to need the man to be right before me. I want to see the wounds. I want to see his side. So we've got a betrayer in the house. We've got a denier in the house, soon to be denier. And we've got a doubter. And Jesus knows this. These are his people. He has tried to work with them, and they have their human frailties and, and, and fragility right there. They're human. And Jesus is not even shaken by that. Now, here's how it would have played out if we had been in the situation and somebody had slipped us an envelope before we entered into the room and we unfolded it and we had big, bold type, Judas, wrong, Peter, wrong, Thomas, wrong. Go in there and get him. This is a chance for Jesus to go in there and, and save himself. All he has to do is point at Judas and says, this man's going to sell me out. And everyone's like, what? Yeah, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. This could have been the moment. This could have been the moment where Jesus is like, I, I got the drop on all you clowns. I know exactly what you're trying to do here, and it's not going to happen. No, instead, Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer robe, ties a towel around himself, pours a basin of water, kneels, and washes the feet of every last individual in that room. An act of service. Humbling himself to the point of a slave. That was slave's work. Showing them this incredible hospitality, even though he knows full well in his mind the level of brokenness, the level of deceit, the level of weakness that's in that room, yet he loves them still. Now, this little exchange that he has with Peter is because Peter is on, he's uncomfortable with the whole act. Peter knows well enough that what Jesus is doing, the role that Jesus is, is, is playing, is a very lowly servant role. And he's very uncomfortable with that. So that's why he's like, You're, you will never wash my feet. Almost as if to say, I won't let you. I won't let you do this demeaning work. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. It, it'll force me to think differently about you. And I've always looked to you for the example of, of strength. And, and this just doesn't it. I mean, again, Jesus is still blowing their minds because he takes on this role that they've never seen him do before. Oh, he has served them countless times. But in this fashion, in this absolutely unforgettable fashion of washing off the day's muck from their feet, it's too much, Peter. It's too much for Peter. Peter, he becomes self-aware. Jesus being down there makes Peter feel like, well, what's he up to? Why would he do this thing? And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you can't share in what I'm trying to do. Unless you let me serve you, unless you let me love you, you will never come to understand. Peter says, well, don't stop there. Wash my, wash my head. Wash my hands. Give me a more noble cleansing, right? Anoint me. He says, well, you're not entirely dirty. And now Jesus goes into sort of metaphorical speaking. You were mostly clean, though not all of you. Hinting at Judas, who's in the room. Yet Judas gets his feet washed as well. When Jesus returns back to the table, his sort of disconcerted disciples are wondering what, what just happened. And Jesus says, do you know what I have done to you? What we know about Jesus is that he always provided an opportunity and a moment for a teaching lesson. Didn't matter if he was out on the byways, if he was among the Gentiles, if he was feeding multitudes or casting out demons, there was always a lesson to be taught to those who were in his care. And this time and this place is no different. Jesus looks beyond the brokenness of those individuals in that room. 
He looks beyond their mistakes. He looks beyond their confusion. He looks beyond their misunderstandings. He still sees a community that he is responsible for. He still sees individuals who are going to have to carry on and live in accordance with his message when he is gone. So he gives them, he's so consistent. He's so consistent in his witness. He gives them this, this final lesson. He says, you call me teacher and master for that is what I am. And no student is above the master. So if I have done to you, if I have lowered myself to wash your feet and to serve you in this capacity, so you should also wash one another's feet. Perhaps this had never occurred to them, the level of service that Jesus was talking about when he called them away from their previous lives to be disciples. Maybe they never knew at what gravity service to one another truly looked like. It's not just helping a friend move, you know, and like, I got some furniture, I got to get it from this place, I got to get it to that place. Yeah, there's service in that, but it's the service of caring for the entire individual. Even if that means being in an uncomfortable setting which feels demeaning, which feels beneath us. And there's so many times when individuals don't get served because we feel like that's too much of an ask. I'll take you to the airport. I'll even for a red eye. I'll, yeah, I can do that. Don't ask me to have to sit there and listen to your stories, listen to your tale of woe, meet you at your bedside as you're, as you're dying. How many of us have met an individual who simply cannot go to the bedside of a dying friend because they don't want that image in their head? And they go, I, I don't want to see him like that. But what if this is... What if this is the call of the divine? What if, what, what if this, this is our version of the foot washing? To enter into that difficult space where of course we don't want to go because these things are unpleasant. This is, I mean, Peter's having a problem. I don't know if Peter had a problem with his feet or if he had a problem with Jesus in that position. And he knew culturally what that meant. But it was too much for Peter, and he was voicing concerns that I think everyone in that room had. And he's like, this is just weird. <laughs> now, after Judas had left the room, we fast forward to verse 31 through 35. And he says, after he had gone out, Jesus then said, I give to you a new commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Others will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Now this is the rub. This is the rub for Monday, Thursday. And it's, it's also the rub for just trying to be a person of faith, trying to be a Christian in particular. Because this mandate comes from Jesus. He sets forth a new commandment. We, you know, we're awashed in the commandments around us. And he sets forth this new commandment that we love one another as he has loved us. You could almost miss that part. You could almost miss that. Love one another as, as I have loved you. So what we have to do, and this is, the, this is just the sort of philosopher in me and the critical reading of the text, we have to think about how Jesus loved us. How does Jesus love us? This is, this is going to be the, the, the thing that you're going to ponder on well through Easter, maybe even the rest of this year, how does Jesus love us? Think about how he entered into that room of those frail and frightened and confused and misguided disciples that he tried to work with for three years, trying to get them to see the reality of God, trying to get them to expand their horizons to show them that the kingdom of God is so much more vast than they had envisioned. He moved beyond the boundaries of, of Jerusalem, moving into the Gentile territories, welcoming individuals that they hadn't even considered. And then he shows no partiality, even in the midst of their, of their human weakness and their striving on who's going to be the first in the kingdom and sort of status-seeking. He holds none of that against them. 
He washes all their feet evenly, whether they betray him, whether they will deny him, whether they will doubt him, or whether they will scatter. Because the others are just sort of like, mm. And everyone was looking for a hiding place. So the way Jesus loves us is what we've heard is without condition. That he sets no standards, he sets no strings on how he loves us. Such an authentic love is hard to duplicate. And what makes this difficult, and this is something that I was thinking of on my way towards tonight, what makes this kind of love difficult for us it's easy if you have a one-off. If you have an individual that you have an opportunity to serve and you'll never see them again, right? Someone that you meet along the way. Someone, you help them change a tire somewhere on the I-80. And you're like, I'm not going to see this person again. So you have no stored up conflict. You serve them. You wish them well. And off you go. Just another face in the crowd. It's those individuals that we will see again. It's those individuals that we get to know time and time again. We start to fashion a relationship. We start to take one another for granted. Jesus was in a room full of individuals that he knew very intimately. And yet, even amongst them, there was enmity. Even amongst them, there was doubt. Even amongst them, there was some anger. When James and John asked for the best positions in the afterlife, the other disciples became absolutely indignant. How dare they? How dare they? Jesus was traveling between communities. The disciples were arguing about who was going to be the first in the kingdom. And Jesus, they didn't think Jesus was listening. He's like, what were you guys talking about along the way? They go, oh, nothing, just this and that, weather talk. He said, mm -hmm. if any of you want to be first, you must be the servant of others, he said. So he was always reinforcing that message of humility. Why is our love conditional? Why are humans wired that way? Why is it that when we show someone a courtesy, it never really stops there? We bank it. We, we bank it. We, we, we tuck it away. Maybe we won't mention it for three years, but then all of a sudden, when we need something, we, we drag it out of the archives, use it as leverage. Remember that time when I, oh, here it comes. I thought you had forgotten about that. You're like, well, I had just stowed it away till I needed it again. We do this. Our love is transactional. Now you can push back against it and say, oh, well, mine isn't. See, and by virtue of saying that, it proves it's transactional. That's why when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, that's when our head starts to spin. Because we realize that is an exceedingly difficult ask. And I don't think it's our, I don't think it's our fear of not wanting to love that way. It's our fear of daring to try. I think we do want to love that way, but we know we'll, we'll fail. And so, so therefore, since we don't want to have a failure, since we don't want to try to put ourselves out there and, and, and love someone, and then when they don't acknowledge the love or they don't seem to have the, the right appreciation for the affirmation, then, then we, we, we discount them as wretches. Ungrateful, ingra ingrates. I did this, that, and the other. I mean, this is the struggle of anyone who's ever been a parent. They always say this. There's a saying, your children come through you. They do not belong to you. It's very easy for me to say I'm not a parent. But I've heard parental stories of the children who were sent into their lives to teach them the higher principles of God. And it is a difficult walk. It happens to us in marriage. It happens to us even in the very confines of the sanctuary, wherever you have individuals who spend ample amounts of time together and hear one another's stories, and all of a sudden, we start to become a means to an end. Bob, what can you do for me? Bill, I need you to read something tonight. Carol, I'll hit you up next week. Bonnie, can you ask Bob to do? No, it becomes transactional. It's not me loving you for the uniqueness that you bring. It's me loving you for what I can get out of you. Somewhere, 
I must have missed that passage where Jesus says, try to love one another as I have loved you. No strings, no transactions, no banked discrepancies in the pack that we can drag out again when the need suits us. Loving them as God has created them, as authentically as they are, even if they don't acknowledge our love, even if they hurt us again, disappoint us again. I believe, I can't prove it, of course, because I wasn't there, I believe that Jesus loved Judas. I do. So often everyone's like, well, you know, you gotta have one bad apple. I believe that Jesus understood and knew, probably from the very call of Judas, that Judas would be susceptible to his disappointment to such a point that he would set the wheels of the prophecy in motion. I believe part of his time in the garden was praying for these individuals that were sent to him, that he would leave behind. And all of us who would fall prey to the same weaknesses, that we at some point would sell out someone's confidence, deny any affiliation with them, or even doubt that they have anything to offer at all, or just to pull up stakes and disappear, and to flee when it gets too hot, and to not be there to support one another. This is all the life cycle of church. All the life cycle of church, you, if you associate with any community long enough, you will realize that the life cycle of a church is this gain and loss in knowing how to maintain your composure in the midst of it all. And it's that strong foundation that we see in Jesus, this is what we try to attach ourselves because without God, we would not be able to even venture down that path. We wouldn't even be able to wander into that path of, of daring to try to love the way Jesus has loved us without his help. Without his partnership, without his companionship, we would not even be able to, to raise our heads with the dignity to be able to even enter into these spaces. I am here by the grace of God. You have been called and sent from many houses of, of worship that have defined and shaped your faith walk by the grace of God. We continue to push forward in this world by virtue of God's grace. And without it, fabric of our community would be far uglier than it even is. So God has established this, this covenant with us. God says, I want to be, be your God. And I want you to be my people. And I want us to have a code of conduct between us. I'll be honest with you. You'll be honest with me. You'll make a mistake. I just want you to acknowledge it. I'll raise you up. You'll have interactions with one another. You'll disappoint one another. But do not rest and establish your code of conduct, nor the nature of your relationship upon the disappointments that we visit upon one another. Remember that at the core of each and every individual is someone who is desiring to love you as Christ loved you. So I hear Jesus saying, Re remember. Remember what this opportunity that I have given you. Remember the strength of humility. Remember in being able to be the first one to say, I'm sorry. And in doing that, that becomes the foundation for that authentic love. Not a love that keeps score, 
Not a love that's quick to remind others of all the things that we've done, all the money that we've poured out, all the bending over backwards in order to give you the kind of life that, is, that you're having. That transactional love is well established in the world. But we know it's bankrupt. Because it's, it's a love that only says, what can you do for me? And if you can do these things for me, then you will meet with my approval. But if you cannot do these things for me, then I'll have to cast you out with everyone else who's ever been a disappointment to me. Jesus, being in this room full of individuals who have disappointed him at some level of the game, still takes off his outer robe, wraps the towel around himself, washes his feet in deep humility, and says, I love you. And he's only hours away from being dead. I don't know how much time we have. No one ever does. But I know that the time that we have right now, this breath of life that we have in our bodies, we can do better. We can do better than we have been before. We, there's so many things that we just don't have to say because they don't yield fruit. But the things that people need to hear are the things that do yield fruit. Let us not be generous in criticism anymore. Let us be rich in affirmations. Let us not look to others for our completion. Let us see if we can't flourish and find within them the thread of Christ. Let us rebuild our communities in such a way to where we are excited to be in one another's companies and not looking for the next thing that's wrong. This has been the greatest disappointment. I think this is probably one of the chief reasons why people don't bother with church. Because when they come to church and they have encounters with the people of God, they're left feeling miserable. Like, well, that wasn't really worth it. You know, first of all, I annoyed someone because, you know, my kid was going off in the pews and, and someone shot me a dirty look because that's all you can see now are people's eyes. So, they, you know, so someone, someone gave him the stink eye. And that's very welcoming. We can do better. but we have to get there as a people. So for whatever disappointments I have visited upon you in the past and in this very moment, let's agree to let those go. I mean, one, it does benefit me, I appreciate that. But, but also, I, I don't think that we need to live in that capacity. This scripture has hit me at a place Maybe it's just because of what's going on in our nation right now and in the world, but this scripture has hit me at a place that I, I have not been. And I realize that I have been guilty as charged of transactional love and affirmation. And I'm sure I'm not alone, but I can't speak for you. I can't speak for myself, and I can say that it's an uncomfortable and a very insidious place to be. And that is why when we celebrate communion on this night in particular, that meal of absolution tastes sweeter than ever before at any other time because we are, we are acutely aware of our sins. We are acutely aware of how we have at various times and points in our life not treated others as the face of Christ, as the personage of Christ, but we have treated them as our son or as our daughter or as our husband or as our wife or as our brother or sister, as, you know, as somebody that we have relationships with, but they've always been a little bit of a screw up. And so we meet them on that plane. And Jesus is asking us to redefine how we interact with one another to see them in a new likeness and to refrain from treating them as anything other than worthy to be blessed.
So as we make our way towards that empty tomb, which we desperately need, let us wrestle with the contemptible nature which allowed others to easily dismiss Jesus and see him affixed to a cross. The anger and disappointment of every person who had their hopes dashed has allowed us to slay this man. It's a very poignant message. But he does not hold it against us. He just simply asks that we love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Let us pray. God of grace, forgiveness, God of incredible patience, I thank you for this, this new reading of, of this passage. I've often been so eager to sort of gloss over the details of this nature of unconditional love. It's almost just become a trope. Jesus loves unconditionally, and then we never, we never plunge the depths of what that actually means and what it requires and entails of us. I pray, for, I pray for Christendom, I pray for the church universal, because we, we've lost our way. We've made the gospel transactional, we've made the personage of Christ transactional, we've made love a commodity. And we have lost ourselves along the way. This message has always been pure and authentic. It was meant for everyone. But we've compartmentalized it and we've pared it down and we've found ways to take select verses and to flip them so we can rule out those we don't want to share in this message. And we can categorize them. I mean, it started with the subjugation of women. Paul permitting no woman to teach, and then churches go, hey, you know, that's a pretty good thing. Yeah, let's, uh, let's do that. Let's keep them from leadership. Let's not ordain them. Let's not allow them to, to have any role other than like serving coffee and rolls. We don't want to hear from them. They got nothing to offer. Then we found other creative ways to say, well, you know, God meant for those people to be enslaved. After all, they're like not even really human. They don't have the smarts to comprehend the gospel. So I tell you what, we'll, we'll create your look, keep you in chains. And then came the raging debate of, well, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Another tired, worn out phrase that we use once again to malign individuals that we don't care to understand. Then we heap a little misfortune on those who, who've been divorced those who've been abused, those who've been cheated from the system, those who've been imprisoned. And we say, well, you must have made some mistakes for God to allow all these things to happen. What was it that you were wearing that these things took place? And bit by bit, we just continue to affix Jesus to the cross, and we never live in the realm of the resurrected Christ who has called all people to himself. We get really excited about our exclusion. An exclusive, unique gospel that we preach that doesn't leave room for anybody. And then if you dare speak out and say, I don't think Jesus meant it that way, you're called a heretic. You say, no. God declares these individuals, these circumstances is bad, and we know it. We can prove it. So I, 
on behalf of Christendom, on behalf of churches everywhere, on behalf of poor theology and bad ministry and collective abuse in the church, forgive us, Lord. We really do not know what we are doing. You've called us to love one another as you have loved us. I guess it's time for us to go back and to see what that means. I guess it's time for us to stop waiting for our turn to speak and listen, listen, listen. And in doing so, we will open our ears to the narratives of those we do not know, those whose stories we have not heard, cultures, traditions, opportunities to learn about the vastness of the kingdom of God. I do not want to share in a limited world where no one has access to you. I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to preach on behalf of that world. I don't want to maintain that world. I speak against that world. I speak against the world of exclusion because that's not how I understand Jesus. He walked into that room with individuals who were tired of him, who didn't like him, who were ready to see him gone, and he washed their feet and he fed them. And yet they still went and did what they had to do. That's love. That's love like, like I'll probably never, ever experience. But I'd like to. So God, help us. Help us to see and understand. Help us to keep trying to not give up. To know that you are with us. Help us to rebuild a community that we can all thrive in. Hear our prayers, Lord, as we set them before you. In Jesus' name. Loving and most merciful God, thank you for receiving these prayers, both spoken and unspoken. Collect them into your care and let your blessing fall upon us as we pray as one. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We join together in our communion hymn, number 330.
I invite you to join together in our covenant as we prepare to receive Holy Communion. We covenant with the Lord and with one another and do bind ourselves in the presence of God to walk together in his holy ways. We will strive to be doers of the word and not hearers only, to be firm in faith, quickened in hope, and constant in charity. And we will consecrate our time, talent, substance, and influence as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Loving and most merciful God, thank you once again for bringing us to your table. And allow in time with application for our brokenness to subside, for our, the offenses to melt away, for us to not look upon one another as a catalog of grievances, but to see the face of God and the opportunities that all that entails. May we receive this meal and feel the warmth of your absolution, making our way through the completion of Holy Week into a glorious Easter. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Jesus was there with his disciples, in that meal he took bread, he blessed it, offered it to them, and says, this is my body which has been given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Taking the cup, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the remission of sins. Let us receive the cup of salvation. As we do eat of this bread and drink from this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. We give you thanks, God, for the awareness that you generate, for the opportunities that you create, and for the ability for us to see ourselves as you see us and to see one another as you see us, that is all a step in the right direction. Help us not to build our relationships upon our perceived disappointments. Let us build them on a platform of partnership created and established in you. Amen. We join together in our closing hymn, number 280, Amazing Grace.
I know I forgot the offering, so Myron will set the house out in the back for those of you who brought your offering. If not, this is last call for gifts. So you can, you can put those in on your way out, but I invite you now to stand for the, for the benediction. <laughs> Loving and most merciful God, here are your people created and fashioned for service in the world. Teach them your ways. Imbue them with your patience. Allow them to see one another not as adversaries, not as a means to an end, not as some future disappointment, but as partners. Collaborators in fashioning the world that you know we can create and live and dwell in peace. It's work, but with you, we can accomplish it. May the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you now and always. May it keep you and guide you in peace. Amen. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.